You're listening to the Maple Leaf Hot Stove Podcast with Alec Brownscomb, Anthony Petrielli, and Declan Karen. Our guest for this episode is Pro Scouting Coordinator from Keens Hockey, Gus Katzeros, and we'll be discussing the contracts for Nylander, Marner, and Matthews, the Maple Leaf system play, the defense, and much more. Welcome everyone to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. This is Alec Brownscombe. I hope everyone is having a great summer and is staying as cool as possible out there. We were recording this on July 16th and I've been realizing this past week or so that this is probably going to be the longest offseason in history with the anticipation we're all feeling, I think, about the, the upcoming season. So hopefully these podcasts, and I think we'll probably do a couple more before the end of the summer, can sort of temporarily scratch the itch for all of you um, Leafs fans. Joining me for this episode, as always, is Anthony Petrielli and Declan Karen. We also got our first ever MLHS podcast guest with us in Gus Katzeros. Gus, thanks for joining us. How is the summer going? Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. And I'm really, really honored to be the first ever guest. It's got to be one of those upper echelon things. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about how it's kind of fitting that you were the first uh, that we've had because you were among the first, if not the first writer I brought on back at, and I don't know, when is that now? 2009, almost 10 years ago at, at Maple Leaf oh, Stove. Yeah. And the rest is obviously history. If you've gone on to do many great things at McKean's and other outlets, but you've always made sure to check in at MLHS now and again with some really insightful articles, which we appreciate. Um, before we get into this, uh, I think I speak for all of us when I say that our, our heartfelt condolences go out to Ray Emery's family and friends. I don't think any of us here had uh, any personal interactions with him, but we certainly all remember him as a really fierce competitor. Um, of course, the first memory that, that comes to mind is that famous fight in Buffalo when he beat up Marty Biron and then stepped in for Jason Spezza by fighting, uh, I think it was Andrew Peters, with sort of a mile-wide grin on his face, despite the fact that he was at like an extremely... Uh, serious disadvantage in the chest protector he was wearing so he also just played some great stretches of hockey as a senator as a flyer as a blackhawk and uh the, the the tributes have been pouring in from teammates which i think speaks to how so unique of a of a character he was for the game and our thoughts and are with his family and friends at at this difficult time let's jump right into this guys i'm thinking that we'll start with a bit of a round table on what we think is going to play out now with the, the big three contracts that could be signed this summer uh, certainly William Nylanders will be, uh, Matthews and Marner are a little more open-ended as far as when those might get done. Uh, Anthony, let's start with you. Do you think all three of these get done this summer? Uh, what figures are you kind of expecting roughly at this point? I think certainly Dubas seems to have taken the, uh, when you have time, use it approach that, uh, Lou Lamorello was certainly uh, fond of during his time here and his time in the league. But uh, obviously, the sooner you get these guys done, the, the better. The problem is that obviously both the players and their agents and the team, they all know that this year could be one hell of a platform year for, for guys like Marner and Matthews. Um, getting JT locked in at $11 million, would you would you say anything that sets a bit of a bar, if not a ceiling, maybe sort of a, a culture of this is where you come to win and be a part of something special? Yeah, I'd agree with that. And that... That's a really interesting question, is whether Matthews is going to make more than, than Tavares. And if not, is that just because he's taken a shorter time? Like, there's a lot of dynamics there, too, right? Or do the Leafs come in? Like, Detroit used to, I'm sure Babcock will be well-versed in it. Like, nobody's making more on the team than Nick Lindstrom. But I wouldn't necessarily call John Tavares Nick Lindstrom. Good player, but not Nick Lindstrom level. So, that. I'm curious to see how they approach those kinds of negotiations. Obviously, Matthews is on. Um, uh, he'll be negotiating as a restricted free agent instead of an unrestricted free agent, which does play a bit of a factor. However, we're kind of just seeing the way these star players are writing writing their checks out, the way McDavid did. And what's interesting about McDavid's contract is he faced a lot of pressure from the NHLPA to like get paid. Like Players wanted him to set a new bar. But Matthews isn't going to set a new bar. Like he's not going to make more than McDavid. Right, but he, I think he's got as good of a, I think he's got a fantastic case to say, I, if he really wanted to, I'm maybe $500,000, $750,000 short of him. I mean, it, this is, Matthews is, I think, I'd have to check, the leading even strength goal scorer since he entered the league, at least on a per-game basis because of his injury. Um, the thing that I think maybe you can sell, uh, Anthony, if you're Dubas, is that 
you're not just going to be a part of a winning team and how attractive that is in itself, but sort of the implications of what winning in Toronto would mean as far as, you know, you're absolutely set for life. Like if you're, if you're Mitch Marner, who's a local kid, if he helps bring the cup home to Toronto, he'll, Declan and I were talking about this the other day, he'll be making 500k appearances to the end of time, right? Like he may, he may even have a beard by then. But, you know, it's, it's not, it's not just like the appeal of being a champion winning a cup. Are which you guys is big just daydreaming about the Leafs winning the cup yeah. and like the ramifications <laughs> of what happens? Like, no. let's relax. Oh, it's, it's July fifteenth. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it, it is a huge selling point from the perspective of what it would mean to win here. Like guys like Wendell and Sittler, like those guys, they didn't win here, but they're probably making more money right now per year as ambassadors for the team and the appearances they do than they did as players. Like, that might be a bit hyperbolic. I don't know, Declan, maybe you know what the salary figures were there, but, like, it's it's probably not far off. I mean, Darcy yeah, Tucker I, Darcy I Tucker makes a post-playing career out of it, right? dollars a year at one point. Yeah, it just seems to me that, like, to sweat your your 500K on your AAV just seems a little short-sighted. Like, I, I, I just, in Marner's case in particular, I just really can't see him driving the hardest bargain he can drive. I mean, these guys should be paid. They will be paid. But I think there's a bit of a culture developing in Toronto right now that you don't necessarily want to be the guy that holds out and misses camp and, and drives every dollar. Like, there's there's something special building here, I think. And and the fact that, like, Connor Brown signed a very reasonable deal because he didn't want to miss camp and he doesn't want to be anyplace else. And that's Connor Brown, who's, I don't know what he's looking at, like 25, 30 million in career earnings if he's lucky. But Gus, if we if we take a, a bit of a ballpark at the figures, the actual figures on these three contracts, um, what are you expecting there? I think a lot of the projections have put it sort of in the in the neighborhood of 26 million with with all three all in, which would be Matthews at 11 and William Marner around a, around seven or so. Is that overly optimistic? You know, it's interesting because I never really considered the question of whether or not Matthews or Tavares should be the highest paid Leaf. Um, you know, I think in my opinion, you have, and I'm not afraid to say this, Matthews is a generational player. The things that he could do at his age right now, injury is the only thing that's kind of kept him from, from achieving more success than he possibly has right now. And he's only going to kind of get better as the Leafs get better. With team success is also going to become, um, you know, there's more notoriety, but more fame and, 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 and the hype and the legend continues. So while I think Tavares is a phenomenal player and he's a star, he's not at that same level as Austin Matthews is. So I personally think that Matthews should be the highest paid leaf. So I would put Matthews in the 12 million range, even if he doesn't and isn't at the same level as Connor McDavid. I don't think that a half a million dollars is going to make that much of a difference. They're both players that, that are not kind of like other than Patrick Liney, there aren't very many other players that have that kind of potential at such a young age. And Tavares will become a supporting player by the time the Leafs are really, really hard uh, and, and consistently contending. Matthews is going to be the driving force. So between all three of those guys, I would encapsulate Marner and Nylander to be somewhere close to what Leon Dreisaitl makes, maybe in that eight and a half million. Maybe a little bit less if they want to take that team discount that you were discussing, but I, I just can't see the NHLPA saying, guys, just because you like staying there, you're both taking a discount and it's going to cause different problems across the league for different players. So I, I, I'm not sure that that $26 million is, I mean, I think it's a little low. So I think all three of them together is probably in the $29 million range. Declan, are you on the same board with that being a low projection at 26? I think that Ehlers and, and Pasternak are the two closest comparables to, to Nylander, and I think he'll come in around, you know, somewhere around $7 million, maybe 7.5, if you consider inflation and the cap going up. Um, I, I can't see him getting as much as Dreisaitl. I think Dreisaitl's tr- contract was awarded after having a pretty pretty huge playoffs, and they, they paid top dollar for him at that point. I don't think and a center premium, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think he'll get that much money, and, and he had a, a pretty lackluster playoffs. He's not coming from a position of strength at the moment, and I don't, you know, I, as much as people started talking about Marner making ten million dollars and stuff like this, I just, I, there's no evidence to back that up. There's the comparables aren't there for it. And I think a lot of that's based around that Kucherov contract, which, I guess that would be the case of buying six UFA years there, right? Versus 
if you're talking on a seven-year deal, it's two two here in this case. Eight-year deal would be three. Um, Anthony, the other thing we should probably talk about here is 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 are we are we looking potentially at a bridge situation with with any of the players? Certainly not Matthews. You wouldn't think. Probably not not Marner, but this summer with with Nylander. And there, then there's a lot of dangers, obviously, with that because this team, I think it's going to blow the league out of the water offensively this year. Uh, we could see disgusting numbers all around out of out of these three. Um, Matthews may play without Hyman stable to his hip for the first time of any length in the NHL based on sort of Babcock's projection of him with Marlowe and Nylander. Um, I think that's going to be a fantastic line. Uh, he's also, you know, talking about JT with, with Marner. Do you think that we're, we're potentially that the Leafs are asking for, for trouble there if they actually bridge Nylander or should just pay the Piper now? Yeah, I think ideally they would pay the Piper. And before we talk about Nylander, I just want to circle back to what Deck was saying about Marner's money. Like, if Marner throws up an 85-point season, which is not out of the question, and then rips up the playoffs on a lengthy run, and he just had nine points in that seven-game series against Boston, like, he's going to get paid. Like, much more than what we're ballparking right now. Like, I wrote an article recently, and I ballparked him around seven and a half, and that's what I would stick with at the moment. But, like, those two things I just said that could happen, that could upgrade his price quite significantly, are pretty reasonable like, he'd have to stay healthy and click with Tavares and all these things, but they're not... I'd actually argue they're more likely to happen than not. So, that that would be a worry. For Nylander, I've actually... I've heard a bit of both um, uh, in terms of whether he's going to sign a long-term deal or sign a bridge deal. I think if... I Just me putting myself in Nylander's shoes, I would sign a bridge deal. I'd he like back to back 61 point seasons he's looked really good uh but there's a lot he's left a lot on the table so far this in his career and he's going to be playing with Matthews again and you know what we look at the back to back 61 point seasons but that was without um Matthews for 20 games so yep. in a yep. way that it's a little bit more impressive right and, and he played in the second power play yeah, and that power play was junk for like what seven? That hit that unit, not the overall power play, but their specific oh, unit for for seventy five seventy five percent of the year. Yeah, they we're terrible. Yeah, three quarters of it. Yeah. So like, God forbid that like that they get clicking again, and he throws up and like he could be throwing up back to back 80, 85 point seasons, no question. And he prices himself off the team at that point, though. So potentially, you know, yeah, he can get paid on a, on a go, go do a bridge deal, throw up maybe seventy five point seasons, and see you later. You you price yourself off the team. Yeah, and that that's the that's the thing with the Leafs, right? Like I would offer him, but that's the debate. Like if I was if I was the Leafs, if I was Dubas, I'd offer him the Ehlers or Pasternak deal right now. It'd be like seven seven years, forty two million. Let's go. But if you're Nylander, do you accept that? No, no. Uh, well, I don't know. Not if you're driving for top dollar. You don't. No. Would you be comfortable offering him seven years, seven million a year right now, forty nine million? I would personally, yeah. Would. I would I would lock him in that. I don't I don't understand like like you you mentioned Ehlers and, and Pasternak. What are those figures? Six and a half? Six and six and a half. That Ehlers contract was a steal, by the way. It was. Yeah, that, that's a steal. Um Gus, do you think that you're in a situation where if you're looking at Nylander's season upcoming here that you gotta like you you've probably got two figures in your head if you're if you're Dubas and Gilman and, and um you're going into this negotiation. You've got a, a bridge number that you're comfortable with if the long term deal doesn't pan out. What do you think that number is if uh, in terms of like past the point of comfortability with extending Nylander long term on a six or seven year deal? So just from a bridge deal itself, I'm not really sure. Like I I I'd really think that um I don't know. Probably somewhere within the six range, just to make sure that they're happy that they can kind of go with the year or two or whatever their contract situation is. And then, I mean, how much more do you possibly give on a longer term term deal yeah. at that point, right? I mean, you, they're going to get semi-paid, if not fully reimbursed for their contract. Like, this is going to be their career contract card. I don't know. It, and if, if you're the Leafs, sorry, guys, you can build off this... Um, if they sign the the bridge, whatever it is, like we agree that we got to go in all in at that during the bridge period, right? Yeah, yeah, they absolutely have to. You know, you'd have to. I'd even think that you know the Leafs have to start going all in right now. Like there's, 
I don't want to talk about windows closing or anything, but they're at a point where you got these three ascending players with a solid support cast. You got to strike while the iron's hot, and if you and if if the Leafs do get enough success, and and for some reason, and I'm out of those big three players, Matthews, Marner, and Nylander, if I was to fathom them making a move on any of those players, I would think that Nylander would be the guy. So, do you start showing the preferential treatment to Marner and Matthews, and then start taking away from what Nylander could possibly achieve to keep his contract low, or do you sign him to a big deal, try to get him as much points as possible, and, and, and ship him off to get some help for that you might need further down the road? Uh, there's a lot of questions, I think, with William Nylander, and we really don't know what kind of player he really is until this year. This is the year that he's going to show us exactly what he is. We've seen his offensive side. We know exactly what he can do. Um, but in the playoffs, he was completely neutralized. That has to be jarring. That has to tell you something from a management perspective that while we covet and expect this guy to be a vital part of our team, he was easily neutralized by a non-Stanley non Cup contending foe. So that, to me, is a question mark that I think that they need to address before making a decision. Anthony, you wanted to finish up on a point there before we move on to the defense? Um, yeah, I was just going to say to what Gus pointed about, uh, not necessarily a window, but this isn't a window, but this is probably, well, it is, financially the easiest time for them to win, without question. Exactly. Like the next next few years, right? Like you have to, if you don't, I'm not saying they can't, they obviously can win in a few years if they don't win now, but... Um, it gets harder in terms of managing the assets and like you need, you know, a, f a few more lucky things to go right. Like this is their, this is their, their silly stage where we're looking at guys on the third line and we're like, this guy's going to play first line for some other team. <laughs> like, like that, that's yeah. the Chicago stage, right? When they had, uh, what was that third line? Um, Andrew Ladd, Boland and, uh, Versteeg. And damn, the Leafs traded for Versteeg to be their first line winger, like the next year. <laughs> Wasn't a great move, but they're like they're in that stage, right? With guys like Connor Brown, like you know, Naz is really good. Like he's the best on paper third line center in the league. All right, let's go on to the the defense here, boys. And the the sense is, I think, probably on all our behalves now, is that the Leafs are are probably going into the year as is. Um, maybe. Maybe that's barring a, a PTO body coming to camp or something on those lines. Is anyone, just before I, I get into my next part of this question, is anyone of a different opinion there and think there is something imminent coming that we're not aware of? I'd have to think that they'd have to do something along the right side. I don't mean a big, big name. You don't have to trade a big name. It might even be a PTO, but I, I'd like to think that there's something coming um, that'll bolster up that right side a little bit. But barring that, guys it sort of leaves us a discussion on how the pairings are going to shake out and whether the Leafs can actually bank on enough internal improvement to get them where they want to go this year, which is obviously a deep run in the postseason. So first for the pairings, I personally, I don't think there's a ton to debate here. I think we'll largely see the top four. You guys can, can push back, but I think we'll largely see the same top four we saw last year because I just don't see how that dynamic changes in, in Babcock's eyes. Like I think it's going to be Riley Hainsey, Gardner Zaitsev, Dermot, and then open competition between, you know, the Holes and the Carricks and the Ozaganovs. Do you see that as any different, Anthony? Uh, no, that's pretty much what I see the unit. I see people arguing to change the uh, pairings, whatever, put Gardner and Riley together and all this stuff. It's honestly, it, to me, it's the equivalent of shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic. Like, <laughs> that that's the unit. Like, we all, um, in, our, uh, in our little Slack chat for listeners... Slack, just a chat system that Deck and Alec and I usually go on and um, talk all things Leafs. We we were saying during the playoffs, like this defense is terrible, and what's going to happen? We'll is get yeah, do we'll nothing. get we'll get a month away from the season. Yep, they'll, and everyone they'll will be let like, we're Polak good. yeah they'll let Polak walk, and everyone will be convinced that if we put Connor Carrick in his spot, everything's fine. Yeah, and it, ha it it's happened. Yeah, right. Everyone's in the like, discourse. yeah, this is a pretty yeah. good unit. Let's just like shake it up and put Riley and Gardner together, and like that's <laughs> like there that's a stud first pairing apparently, and like just we're good. Like set the pieces. Like it's not a good defense, and it's like one of their biggest issues against Boston and against good teams in general was just their inability to transition the puck cleanly. 
and yep. I think Riley could get a little bit better still. I, Gardner basically is what he is. You hope Zaitsev is a little bit better at minimum of what he did last year, which was pretty bad. And um, I think Travis Dermott is is legitimately kind of the player. wild. He's kind of the wild card there, right? I mean, yeah. As it stands, it's it's basically a case of can the Leafs in the aggregate get enough incremental improvements out of this group that it gets them somewhere approaching league average on the back end, which that should be all they really they really need. As you say, like if his sights have this is a pretty big if. Can he can he have a full healthy year? I think that's a good starting point. Um, and then ha- then do something approaching competent top four minutes. Um, in Hainsey's case, I think I think you're hoping kind of for an, a less is more situation there, aren't you, Gus? In terms of like can they manage his minutes a little more? Um, one thing to keep in mind about about Hainsey is that he never had. <laughs> I, I bring this up often, but like he had never made the playoffs before last year, and then he made the Cup Finals playing top minutes in his first goal of it last year. By the time he reached the stretch run this year, and then the playoffs, and he was he just looked incredibly worn down. Like you'd have he to imagine. Like a different player. Yeah, it's like, and he's playing the most shorthanded minutes in the league. On top of that, um, in the year that followed, so I, I think a full off season for him helps. But he is ultimately 36 years old. Um, can you get sort of in the, in the aggregate enough incremental improvements, Gus, to sort of have this blue line be passable around league average? Well, I, I mean, I've always kind of been on the point that I don't really think it's, it's so much the, the, the blue line itself. That's the defensive problem for Toronto. They simply don't play very good defense as a team. Um, the forwards themselves don't support the the defense very well. Once the team starts the chaos in the defensive zone, the Leafs just do not know how to react. Um, we could talk about pairings until the cows come home, but the reality here is they just do not play well enough as a unit, and each pairing has its own little liability. Um, Hainsey might be old. He might have some value, but to your points, man, by the time the season was done, Regardless of whether or not he went to the finals the year before, or whatever the case was, um, I'm you know as an old timer, and when you start getting into yeah. your 30s, your body changes, your you you have to adapt. It's 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 not the same as when you're in your when you're in your 20s. Recovery time takes so much longer. Absolutely, and you know we don't know what injuries he really was playing with. It might have been just something kind of nagging, and and overall, I think that Toronto has to take a different approach to defense. Um, I kind of have a little bit of views of, of where defense essentially kind of is heading. Um, I don't think that uh, I don't think that we're going to see something in Toronto where uh, we're going to have a distinct first pairing, second and the third. I think that we're going to average everything down from the first up from the third, and we're going to have a nice three second lines, three second pairing defensemen that can move the puck, support the rush and do all these things. They're not there yet. It's something that I think that they're still building on. You could kind of look at how they drafted and you see the type of players that they brought in. So the mentality seems to be there. So if the Leafs are going to move into this into this next phase, which to Anthony's point is exactly why they need to do this, they need to be able to transition better. And they can't do that with the current crop of defensemen that they have. And they can't do it with the current crop of forwards that they have. John Tavares is a great addition, but they're not that much different from the team than they were last year. They still have the same defensive problems, um, and I'm not really sure how you address that. There should have to be, there needs to be a, an internal solution on a team level that needs to support that blue line much better because they're not playing very well defensively, and they just don't get enough good support to be able to do the things that will help in the transition to Anthony's point. So uh, there, there's a lot of questions on that blue line that I think has to come from Babcock, not necessarily the players themselves. Declan, if we're, I guess, not to depress people too much about the blue line, but... Um, hope is not really a plan. That said, do you think the the Travis Dermott wild card, as far as is he capable of taking on more significant responsibility? I think uh, people probably forget a little bit just how tightly managed he was in the playoffs. I think he had a couple of uh, nine and ten minute nights, if I'm not mistaken. There, um, how do you think that that Dermott's ready to take sort of that that next step, or is he is he still sort of in for what's basically a de facto rookie year? I think if you look at the way the Babcocks historically manages players, he's never he's never sort of given the reins really quickly to 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 anyone. He, he 
tightly manages things and you know it's not satiating for fans or media to, that are looking for a young player to sort of arrive and you know you throw all sorts of uh, special team uh, time for him and all sorts of you know more responsibility but that's just not the way he does it he doesn't want them to to take any step backwards and continuously only take even if it's small increments they're always taking uh, steps forward and their confidence levels are always going up having said that i mean there's he hasn't put a foot wrong yet. I mean, even when he, he turned the puck over quite a bit, but he was one of the most, uh, he was one of the better players in the team of fixing his mistakes. And yeah, he would take high risk plays, but he'd work himself back into position and usually fix the mistake and, and then, you know, quickly get the puck out of the zone. I was really impressed with them um, at the NHL level. And of course the AHL level, uh, that aspect of his game. So that's the sort of player that you wouldn't mind throwing into, into a situation where he's getting more responsibility and, um, you know, maybe him and Justin Hall with their experience together in the, in the AHL or, you know, have some sort of built in chemistry where it makes it a bit easier for them to, to be given a bit more responsibility. And as the, as the year goes on, maybe that, you know, the second pairing is not doing as well that you can sort of introduce more minutes to them and, and uh, slowly introduce that, that sort of aspect, uh, aspect to them. And we're talking about transitioning the puck and how Leafs struggle with it. Anthony, if, if as Declan just said, Justin Hole is the guy who takes who takes sort of the opportunity with both hands at camp, is on the bottom pairing the right side, and Dermot is now your 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 mainstay on that bottom pair left side. Uh, last year at, at this time going into, or just after camp they were coming out with, with the like they were playing around with the likes of Borgman and in, in on that bottom pairing. They had obviously Roman Polak eventually got back from injury and, and played basically uh, nightly with a few uh healthy scratches here and there from there on to that point how much do you think there is room for improvement as far as hole and dermot's ability to help with the transition game defensively and do you think that um uh gardner and riley have much more to give than what we saw from them last year i think riley has a little bit more to give i think gardner pretty much is what he is like he's uh 28 he's a 90 so um you know, this is like guys don't usually get substantially better at this point. If anything, they start tailing off. Uh, but to the what was being discussed earlier about Hainsey, I do think Hainsey was really good up until around Christmas. I think we can all agree. Yep. yep. Right. First few months, everyone was like, "This Hainsey guy's a player." After that contract got ripped on all last summer. Um, but uh, but playing five minutes shorthanded a night actually gets to 36 year old defenseman I think yeah it was shocking <laughs> I, who could have seen that coming but yeah uh, like just managing his minutes alone will make them a better team and like they've got it and do you do sorry to jump on your point there Anthony but do does 11 and seven help you accomplish that because the other consideration we're talking about Hall making the team and Dermot that's all premature but. Babcock probably doesn't have his PK guys if, if Hall's on the team on that bottom pairing right side, or Carrick, right? So can you can you use a Marinson in that spot as sort of your specialist and kind of ease up those Hainsey minutes and then get less is more out of him? And and is that sort of the approach you'd take there? Yeah, and, like, I, I guess... I don't know if I'm more out of the box or whatnot, but, like, I look at what ha- what's happening in the NBA, and, like, they just... They'll sit stars, and they're like you know what, it's like a random game on a Tuesday, like, LeBron's knees need resting, and and that's just what we're going to do. And if we lose the, the game, so be it. did so little of that for a team that was solidly in a playoff spot from when? From January? March 1? Easy. Like, March yeah. 1, like, I can't say sure. that about their stars, though. I mean, they, they, the, the minutes were managed very tightly, and everyone was complaining that Matthews wasn't getting enough ice time, and Marner wasn't, and... Um, on those but, on those guys, yes, but Hainsey was still playing a ton. Anderson wasn't Anderson, resting yeah. at all. It was like, what are we doing here? Who cares? Like, just try things out. See what happens. Call up Sparks for a few games for all I care. Like, let's rest guys a little bit. Do they really do that and in the NBA, yeah. though? Like, I mean, knowingly? Oh, all the time. It's a problem. It. Oh, yeah. As a, Popovich. But as a fan, though, Popovich wouldn't you be pissed? Standard. Oh, 100%. It's a huge problem in the NBA. Okay. All right. But Popovich, Popovich takes us fine on the Spurs. He's like, I don't care. Find me. I'm here to win games. I'm here to win championships. Good for him. I'm not here to win on a Tuesday against the Phoenix Suns. Good for him. I like that. Yeah, right? I think I think Leafs fans would be all right if if Ron Hainsey took the odd night off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we're not even saying sit Matthews or whatever. 
Yeah. Just saying, like, rest some of these guys, like, especially Anderson. Like, he, he and that's going to really be interesting. Bad. That's going to be interesting, Anthony. And this kind of bridges into some of the Twitter questions and, and MLHS comments questions we got um, that we really want to get to because there's a lot of good ones. But um, one of them was, do you think that the Leafs backup is in for more starts this year? And that is where you could start. you could start to sort of imagine a little bit of not conflict, but a bit of uh, difference of ideas when it comes to Dubas's uh, idea for how Anderson should be managed and that the sports science team's uh, ideas of how Anderson's minutes should be managed and then the way Mike Babcock likes to likes to work as goalies. Do you see that, Anthony, sort of as an interesting storyline entering this year? I do. Like Last year, I thought, like the past season, I thought for sure, like there's no way Anderson is just starting like starting every game other than the second half of back-to-back. And yeah. and then it happened again, which was shocking to me. The first the first year I understood because that was like that was every that, that was like a team's proverbial like it's going to take everything that we have just to get into the playoffs. The Leafs got into the playoffs game 81 with like 5 minutes left or whatever they scored the game winner. Like that went to the wire, but that was not last year. So it was shocking yeah. to see it happen again last year. And they have the goaltending depth. I'm really not sure what's going to happen with uh, the backup goalie situation. Like, are they going to go with McElhaney again? Are they going to give it to Sparks? Like, are they going to trade someone? Are they just going to lose someone to waivers? They obviously tried to pay Picard a little bit more money to keep him in the organization, which was smart. Um, but, like, you have to you have to think they're going to lose someone. And then at the same time, and, and Declan, you and I were laughing about this a few weeks ago because I was just, like, scrolling through old conversations and I'd I'd said during the playoffs like goaltending is just this thing that people don't think matters all year and then playoffs roll around they're like it's nice to have a good goalie in the net well that's that's the other thing Anthony is that like there's so few teams that most teams want to see before they go and acquire a, a depth goaltender a Sparks or a Pickard what happens at camp right that's yeah, I themselves. think where most teams are at, and but but and then at that point they're waiver eligible players, and and every team's just going to sit and see what shakes loose in Toronto, probably, right? That's that's what makes it a bit of a tough deal. But um, let's move into the into the questions here, guys. And Gus, we had quite a few directed your way in the in the comments as it pertains to. We talked a little a little bit about this already. Um, this Babcock systems, and I think there's a a perceived difference in Babcock systems from 2015-16 to what we've seen these last few years, just as far as how that sort of, I guess, clunker of a roster he had when he first showed up and how they played and how they broke the puck out compared to sort of the far more talented teams of the past few years and how sort of they compare and contrast right now. Like, obviously, we've seen the game in general in the past few seasons, sort of with the success Pittsburgh has had and the overall emphasis on Sweden's skills sort of the league trend a little more in the direction of incorporating some of these long bomb breakouts and wingers releasing the zone and sort of what Mike Sullivan in Pittsburgh calls those space plays where you create those foot races in the neutral zone against vulnerable defensemen. And I think with, with how active DR now um, down the walls in the offensive zone, how fast and structured the game is, it's sort of a way to diffuse and take the sting out of a forecheck a little bit and back that, that sort of the D off and create the, the organized chaos that I would say the Leafs kind of thrived on last year, just sort of getting the puck moving north and south as quickly as possible before the opposition can kind of set up in the neutral zone. But there, Gus, there is this perception that the Leafs have sort of over-relied on that long puck kind of stuff at times in the past few years, and it can kind of be frustrating at times when you see those massive gaps and you have multiple forwards standing flat-footed or, or sort of pucks being tipped in with no one in a position to retrieve. Um, Babcock's history, obviously, in Detroit and then in his first year in Toronto was that sort of that breaking out in tight five-man units with the close center support. So what are you seeing there, Gus? Like, for a team as talented as they were as they were last year, the Leafs, I don't think, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they weren't an elite possession team by any means. Like, how have you seen Babcock's systems evolve as it pertains to sort of the breakout the past few years, and how do you kind of place that in, in the context of the league-wide shifts that have taken place? Well, I thought when, when Babcock first got to Toronto, and this is the biggest... Um, point was I thought what he did especially with the rosters as that that he inherited he put a system and structure into place that you could see future players being plugged into without changing very much so he anything that you saw the lease in the past that he he completely destroyed that so it was an aggressive 
forecheck. It was an aggressive neutral zone forecheck, and it wasn't as aggressive in the defensive zone, more a little bit more prevent um, and less 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 attempts at engaging puck rushers. That, I think, was a problem from the beginning, and it's still a problem today. So it's something that he hasn't really addressed, or they haven't been able to address, or the, the personnel that they have haven't been able to address. As far as I'm concerned, um, the aggressive offensive zone forecheck is the biggest difference in Toronto. When he, they first, when Babcock first got here, they were relentless. They kept forechecking and forechecking and forechecking. Pressure was always in the offensive zone. Um, but they just didn't have the horses to do that. In comes Matthews and a younger crew and, and a much more talented and skillful crew with a same penchant of being relentless in the offensive zone and, and, and forcing teams into turnovers and making mistakes that the, uh, that may have begun in the offensive zone and, and become uh, leaf possession in the neutral zone. They were good at doing that. But there was a price to pay for that aggression in the offensive and neutral zone, and it was defensively. And you saw that the Leafs just were simple ass in the defensive zone. And a lot of that had to do with being so far away from the puck. That organized chaos that they thrived on, other teams would thrive on it because the Leafs were just so disorganized playing this really aggressive offensive stop. So last year they dialed it back. They moved away from the 2-1-2 in a very aggressive forecheck into a more... 1-2-2, two, two, but with elements of regression. That change in itself to become a little bit more defensively responsible did nothing. Like, as far as defense goes, it didn't make them any better. They were still ass in the defensive zone. They still uh, couldn't control the chaos. And they took away one of the really stinging elements that made them so successful. And we saw when they went through that scoring drought midway through the season, and you could see the structure that they abandoned in order to try to get better defensively, and it didn't really work. Do you know what I've thought about that a little bit, Gus? And I was I was looking at it last night with Anthony in uh, Sean, some of Sean Tierney's um, visualizations that he's got up on Tableau. Um, is Which are right great, around, by the way. Yeah, they're fantastic. I mean, you can just you can sit there for hours and look at this sort of stuff. But I was looking specifically at the possession numbers for the Leaf, and it's tracked over all 82 games. And you can see, you can literally draw a line. You, I was looking for it. I expected it to be where it was. And you can see the dip um, where these changes that you're talking about came in. But one of the things that was that I was that we were talking about at the time was how they they were playing a really explosive offensive uh, style, and it was really fun to watch. Obviously, they're just you know it's. Early season hockey, neutral zones wide open. Um, players aren't as committed to, to the play as, as they normally would be later in the season. Um, and then they just started inexplicably started dumping the puck in. You're watching players that have that will have no chance in hell to get that puck back. Doing a, a old school dump and chase, not you know smart chips and, and area plays. Um, and he was forcing them to. I thought anyway. It was sort of a coaching correction to say you guys are going to have to earn your offense the hard way because uh, playing this wide open system is losing hockey eventually. As you go further down the year, it's better to do it now uh, that we've got some points and we've got a, a reasonably good start under our, our belts um, and and sort of integrate the two systems or the two styles. I shouldn't call them systems. The two styles back back together where they're playing a bit of a heavier game. Um, with that same sort of explosive off offense. And you know, it's interesting. Sorry, guys, just to end off on that point. Um, I actually think that the Leafs, with the addition of Tavares and Kapanins and for a full season and the Janssens for a full season, have the horses and the guns to be able to go back to applying a bit more of an aggressive style, knowing that they have much more offensive firepower to, you know, if our defense is going to fuck up every time, excuse me, we're going to yeah. have to make up First for official swear F-bomb on the MLHS podcast. The floodgates are open, boys. <laughs> Thanks for breaking the ice. I've been, I, I've been trying to hold back, but man, you know. Look at the guy. First time guest on the podcast. He's dropping F-bombs. <laughs> acting like he owns the place. Walks in like he runs the store. I just turned the radio on just like Fnuff did. You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, the Leafs have the guns right now to go back to that really aggressive offensive forecheck. They are much better structured in the neutral zone. They need to get better team def uh better a better concept of team defense and to limit games to 
you know, you could still win 5-4 as long as you win. That's the bottom line. The it's it's oh. fun, but it's dumb line by Babcock. Probably the funny, funniest thing this year. <laughs> One of his best lines of the year. Yeah. Anthony, also, uh, sort of along these lines, a question in the comments. Uh, and the reason, I just kind of want to tee you up here and let it, let this play out. So people are asking why the systems that we see with the Leafs seem different or are differently executed than with the Marlies. Go, Anthony. <laughs> Alex says go because he knows I have this rant every once in a while on these, on these questions because this makes no sense to me. The Marlies had the best defense in the AHL. Like, at points, they dressed a better defense in the AHL than some NHL teams cough, Buffalo Sabres cough. Right? Like, it's... You can't compare it. Whereas the Leafs were dressing a bottom 10 defense consistently... At points, it was bottom five once, like, Hainsey's legs fell off come, like, mid-February. Yeah, and the Marlies, the Marlies obviously have Lilgren, Hole, Laverde down the right, which is just night and day compared to, at an AHL perspective compared to what, the, what they had at the NHL level. But, Anthony, maybe just sort of speak to how that changes the way uh, sort of the systems appear to be executed. So, yeah, there's an, another part to that, too. Not just that right side, like... Callie Rosen was, like, a superstar in the AHL playoffs. Like, he lit the AHL playoffs up. He was a total star. And then Dermot goes down as well. Yeah, yeah, conversely to what the Leafs' defense looked like in the playoffs, which we won't even discuss. So, like, <laughs> there's no comparison to be made. And then the second point to my rant, which is always, NHL players know how to play, like, pro hockey players know how to play systems. Like, like, Andreas Janssen, if he was playing in a 1-2-2 a two, two neutral zone trap forecheck, could have easily went from that to, like, Vegas's like, three guys in deep all aggressive. Like, he, he doesn't need to be coached on how to chase after a puck. <laughs> like, th- like, they're pro hockey players. Like, it's not that big of a difference. Like, we, we saw it with Babcock, right, when, in terms of what Gus was saying when he first came here and he instilled this, like, good system and, like, the, the team was still terrible. Like, there's good players and there's bad players. Like, that's ultimately, like, what wins games. And then at the same point, we saw a lot of people talk about this with um, with Vegas. And uh, Shanahan, I thought, actually had uh, – he articulated it the best when he talked about their commitment as a team. Um, and Just no let off. Yeah, no right, let off, and, and within yeah. their structure. That's the hardest thing to do when you're coaching 23 – multi-millionaires that are in their early 20s with no offense to most of them high school educations right like (laughs) that that's a really and then you've got to coach these guys about like being in the right position and and, like it's not that they don't know it's that you've got to keep them honest and we talked about that with the last podcast a little bit like you know um dex line over there like a monkey could make the lines yes but the hardest part is going to be managing all these guys right because like Matthews and Nylander and Marner are going to want their points because they're going to want to get paid. And at the same time, you know, you have to create this um, culture and thought process right now that is basically, if the team does well, you will individually do well. Which is Babcock's biggest job. Yes. Um, let's let's uh, jump to this next question. Uh, Gus, do you want to take this one? We actually had a couple uh, questions, one on Twitter, one on in the MLHS comments about how the Leafs stack up with Tampa Bay if they don't get Carlson, and then how they stack up if they do. Well, I think Tampa Bay, even with or without Carlson, are Stanley Cup contenders. The Leafs aren't there yet, and I think that the Leafs are at least a season or two away from being in the situation that Tampa Bay uh, found themselves maybe Maybe on the eve of Stamkos signing in Toronto, they were kind of getting to that same spot where where they would become consistent contenders. Um, Toronto's not at that point yet. Given what Carlson brings and what he's able to do on his own and how he can influence a team, I mean, the rest of the league has to be wary about Carlson being in Tampa Bay because that just... It creates an entirely different dynamic that every team is going to have to deal with. Hedman on half the game, Carlson on the other half, deal with it. So... As far as where the Leafs kind of stack up between, they're nowhere close to where I think Tampa Bay really is at this point. They will at some day be, but they're still a season or two away, I think. 
the quick thing I'll say on on this is um, I know it's popular for Carlson to get ripped on a little bit right now. Uh, it seems, and I am legitimately worried about the um, Achilles. I, I did his his mobility was not the same, even though he was still productive last year. His skating was not the same. Um, it, it's a it's a legitimate concern. Absolutely, um, I would say. In Carlson's defense, I watched him a little bit live down the stretch, and it was coming along. I just think that, like, he needed he need he it's a, it's such a massive recovery from that injury, and he probably needed the benefit of the doubt until about March. To be fair, and what uh, I, with what he was coming back from, what I was gonna say to his defense is, to me, to me, last the the season before when they went to the Eastern Conference Game Seven and lost in was it first overtime or double overtime? I want to say double overtime. Um, yep. I thought he was the best player in the world at that time. Like, and it, then he lost his entire offseason. Yeah, and then he <laughs> yeah, lost his entire yeah. offseason. But, like, that... And that was only a season removed. Like, it's funny how quick we forget. Like, it, 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 it seems hockey superstars don't have the same staying power um, as an NBA superstar or an NFL superstar or even a baseball superstar to some degree. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, like, Carlson didn't completely light the league on fire, like, would Tampa be good if they got him? Tampa would be really, really good. <laughs> like, terrifying. And you know what? If I was... Um, like, it fits perfectly, too, because if you have Carlson up top on the power play, it's you see it with Washington, it's much better to have a right-handed um, D-man feeding the one-timer side on, on that, um, I guess, left hash mark if you're facing towards the net, like where Stamko, San Ovechkin... Um, chill and should have their jerseys retired in those respective cities. Like having the right hander up there is, it just makes it way, that pass is way better. And if you're, you're basically, if Carlson's up there on that power play, you're like, either Carlson's going to give it to Stamkos and it doesn't even matter if there's a screen because Stamkos is going to blow it right by him. Or it's going to be right on the tape. Yeah. Or you sell out on the pass and Carlson's going to skate down himself. And just do something ridiculous. Like, I would, I wouldn't want to see it because they're in the Leafs division, but I would want to see it because it would just be spectacular. And to what Gus was saying, like, you'd have these guys playing thirty minutes a night. Like, it'd be, it'd be. I don't, I don't think Hedman and Carlson is as good as what Niedermeyer and Pronger was on Anaheim, but it would be close. All right, let's get into a couple like faster. rapid fire questions here gus uh let's go to you on this i know you watched um i saw that you were at at the rico now the coca-cola sorry coliseum a, cu- <laughs> a couple of times uh during the playoffs uh, quite a bit actually question from from leafhead here on twitter do you think uh whole rosen and co from the marlies will cut it playing with Leafs for most of the year are they good enough you know it's interesting the perception based on the success that the Marlies had was that their defense and their defense was incredible for the AHL. Um, I think that there was a reason Rosen was in the AHL last year. And he, that's probably the reason that he's going to stay there next year. I think Hull gets the benefit of the doubt and probably wins. If not a spot outright in the top six, at least to hang around as a seventh. Um, and you know, I, he's, he's actually a very intriguing player. I don't have a good, I don't have the best handle on him, but there's there's things that, that that defensemen need to do in the NHL these days. Play well at the top of the offensive zone and get the puck out to good skilled forwards. He does that, and he does that very well, and he does it with very few mistakes. So I think that Hole has a chance to stay with Toronto potentially all season. I don't think anybody else does. To that note, Gus, do you see these guys starting to go home, pulling an alternate? You know, I I guess it I, it kind of depends on what the situation is at home. And if they have the potential to make it even as a showcase in Toronto, because it's really not that bad a place to play in the American Hockey League in Toronto, and they can somehow find a way to springboard to another NHL club, they'll stick around. If not, they're definitely heading back to Europe. To your point, Anthony, we just, Alton and obviously left, and we just saw Philip home. Uh, pack his bags for the KHL the other day, um, who I believe the Leafs were in on, but opted to sort of back out on uh, And when Vancouver signed him. Uh, Anthony, for you, how many minutes do you think the centers, the centers, sorry, the centers will play on average per line? Zero. Uh, 
I don't think the center. So I don't think the centers will be playing many minutes of hockey this year. To be yeah, clear, not Oops. NHL minutes anyway. No. Uh, <laughs> so thank you for how that. Many, how many minutes, Anthony? Do you think the senator? This not the senators. The centers will play on average per line. Uh, I think he's getting at. Uh, is there even a point to having a four C basically? Yeah, and and here here's my um, one of the things I'm most interested in because, like the top of the forward. Like, the top, like, 10 forwards on the team are so good that, like, there's not a lot of question marks there. It's just how you're going to shuffle the pieces and how you're going to deploy everybody. But one of the things I'm probably most interested in and I'll have a big eye on is how um, Lindholm can play 4C. So we saw Thomas Plekanic, um come in from a, a pretty substantial role on Montreal, get dropped to 4C, and he, he was not the same player and in how he played with such limited ice time and such a limited role. And Lindholm's essentially going to be doing the same thing. Now, should Lindholm expect to be coming on to pretty well any NHL team and get substantial minutes? Obviously not, right? Like, he's going through the rite of passage. But he's also, like, 26 going through this rite of passage. Um, so I, I, the key's a wild card to me. Like, is he going to be able to handle playing 10 minutes a night and be able to make an impact on a game? Because yeah, I I talked to his agent a little bit and a couple guys in Sweden about him, and I guess he did earlier in his career. He was seen as sort of like a, a defensive bottom six guy. And that, you know that's what his... Babcock's doing with him. Yeah, yeah, Babcock's got him earmarked for that spot. Um, Babcock likes to treat treat his fourth line centers like dogs, and and expects them to like it. You're going to take heavy defensive zone face offs, and and you know your stats are going to suffer because of it, but. And he's got a, a history of sort of sewering the fourth line center. Quinville does the same thing in, in Chicago when they had a, a bit of a deeper roster. Dieters it's been it's been such a revolving door. Um, Lindholm, to his I don't know if this might help. He I, I believe Declan we looked this up and he was top two or three in the in the league in faceoff percentage last year, which is probably the biggest thing. Uh, he he's a left hander, so he doesn't give them that right side draw taker that Babcock's going to be looking for, but. That goes a long way if he can actually prove himself as a PK and face-off option. I think that's probably the biggest thing for, for that role. And so um, to that center question, um, that's the first thing for me, right? Like, can this guy play it? Like, if he shows, and he'll get he'll get a good he'll get a good opportunity at the beginning. Like Babcock doesn't shortchange guys on those opportunities. Like he wants him to be there clearly. Um, and I'm not suggesting he was promised it, but I'm sure there was some sort of like you're coming here. Like, you're going to get an NHL shot. And it wouldn't surprise me if he looks good in preseason because of the way the preseason roster shake out and he plays with a few more skilled players. Like, that kind of thing. But, like, once the, once the NHL season starts, like, if he can't manage that, then, like, I would be more willing to just be like, yeah, 11-7 and seven and let's see what happens. Like, play, play Tavares and Matthews uh, closer to 20 minutes um, as opposed to around 18. And which is something they they probably should do in the playoffs anyway. So, you know, when you're getting to the deadline, hopefully the Leafs aren't in a position where they're forfeiting second round picks again this March, right? That's got to be yeah. the, the goal. Um, Gus, let's let's close on this question. I just saw this one from Maxwell Howe on MLHS. He wanted to know how you would, sort of sort of along the same lines, sticking with the center theme, how would you deploy Matthews, Tavares, and Kadri? He's basically saying, Maxwell Howe is basically saying that Kadri remaining the shutdown guy, he doesn't see how you let other teams decide how much Matthews or Tavares are actually going to play, right? So if Kadri is the matchup guy and his game, his time's up around 20 minutes, you know, how do those minutes actually you know, shake out? One of the out? biggest things the devil ever did was trying to convince Lee fans that Nazem Kadri is some kind of a selkie candidate, and I just can't see that. He's not a, sh- he's not a shutdown center. <laughs> I'll, I'll argue this. He did have that, Ooh, that, that game one game. With David, yeah, though. I know, I know. Never forget. Know. Never forget. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's actually a shame because that third line isn't really a third shutdown line. It's actually an extension of the Leafs' offensive power. So as far as Kadri is concerned, he should play what a second line center should play. But because Tavares is going to be in that second line center spot, he's going to eat a little bit of those minutes. I don't expect Kadri to be a shutdown guy at all. I would expect that the Leafs should go power for power. And let the other teams deal with that because if you shut down the first line, you're not going to shut down the next two. And if you shut down the second line, you got two other scoring units. So as far as Toronto is concerned, they should just mitigate those three based on who's going on that particular night, and then you just supplement the rest of the minutes with that four line, uh, fourth line. 
And Anthony, let's do this one quickly. Sorry, I just saw from Strictly Business in the in the uh, MLHS comments. Will Andreas Janssen see time in the top six, and will Hyman ever see time in the bottom six? Let's also, Anthony, get your take on because I saw you take some heat up for this on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I actually I agree with I actually fully agree with your lineup projection. That's kind of where I naturally assumed he would be slotting in. A lot of people don't. So where does where does uh, also on that left side where does Tyler Ennis mix into there? All right, first of all, I think we can all agree that Zach Hyman is like Babcock's dream, and he's going <laughs> to be in the top six come hell or high water. I think we can all agree. Yep. Yeah, I mean, well, his lineup projection had him move from Matthew's wing to Tavares's wing, so I think that's <laughs> yeah. that tells you all you need to know. And yep. to me, to Gus's point, like I don't envision you making that move because Hyman, to his credit, is probably the least best defensive winger. Like, on the team. Like, I think he's their, their best defensive winger. Like, I don't think you move him to Tavares and Marner. And Marner played in that, like, head-to-head role for, like, the last half of the season or last, like, third. And Tavares did it all season with the Islanders. Like, I don't think you move Hyman there unless you envision that line going head-to-head, which is basically what Gus said. Yep. Like, I, I don't think you want Marlo, Matthews, and Nylander going head-to-head. You don't mind it, but not all. All you night. really needed to do was just say, you know what? Let me just defer to what Gus said, and then we could have just saved ourselves like maybe a couple of minutes. <laughs> <on the podcast. laughs> That's a great note. I, to I was just supplementing um. it, but to the to the Janssen, the Janssen ah, yes, Ennis yes, thing. So right, right. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think people are like a little overboard on Janssen. Like he's he's um, I don't know if he's 24 yet, but this is his 24th year. Um, of living he's 24 in the fall. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, like he's no, like, he's not like young. Um, you know, how many guys, like he had, a, he had a pretty good playoffs, but like, he wasn't like good playoffs, first line minutes, you know, big role. He was like good playoffs, energy minutes, like 10 to 12 came in and, you know, worked his tail off and which was all great stuff, but, um, MVP. yeah, I'm not going to, yeah. That, which was great. Um, but like we looked at the past MVPs, like if he, if he does this year, what, um, Oliver Borkstrand did, um, last season in Columbus, who came off an MVP himself at a younger age too. And, um, Borkstrand had 11 goals and 40 points this year. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, he just signed that like two and a half million dollar a year deal. Like that would be a great season for Janssen. So I'm not like, I'm not overboard on this guy the way other people are. I'm certainly not going to watch like a few playoff games in the NHL. Like how many young guys have we seen come in on fire in the NHL playoffs? And then like the, the grind of the season happens and their games tail off. And then the, the last part to the Ennis thing is first of all, I think I received more heat for the Tyler Ennis projection on the third line. The Tavares than break? I did for the Tavares <laughs> break. Which was stunning. Like, I think I had to turn my phone off. I was like, this is unbelievable. One, I'm not saying what I would do. He's not, he's he's nation, not baby. defensively. I don't think you can put him in a checking role. Ennis? Or Janssen? Yeah, yeah, but if he's on a line with Kadri and Brown. Yeah, my point is I don't think it's exactly. a checking line. It's not a checking yeah. line. Right? So I, yeah, right? So you just, like, go play with Naz and Brown. And, like, I also got a kick out of um, everyone putting up Kapanen over Brown. Like, where have you been the last few years? Have you been watching what Babcock's doing? <laughs> like, he loves Brown. You know... Like, Hyman's his first favorite player on the to, team. To Connor that Brown's point, second. Anthony, when the Leafs were screwing around in Boston in the playoffs, they took Nylander off the first line, and it was Brown that was injected there. That's yes. his boy. Yes. And that's his always his examples. Like, you need your Muckers. Yeah. You need your Browns and your Hymans. He doesn't say any other players yeah. on the team. It's just Hyman and Brown. He loves those guys. Like I don't think he's gonna supplant Connor Brown for Kasperi Kapanen. Not to start the season anyway. And to Tyler Ennis, Babcock has a history of favoring vets. I'm not. I can't read Babcock's mind. I have no idea what he's gonna do five months from now or whatever it is. But given his history, a hundred times out of a hundred, he favors the vet over the kid. Right or wrong, that is what he does. Ty goes to the vet. Ty goes to the vet. TM Babcock. Yeah, and I don't love I don't love Ennis. Like I would have I would have rather I was saying to to Deck when it happened. Like I would have personally I would have rather brought back Daniel Winnick as a penalty killer, as a pure fourth liner, and had Janssen play on the third line. Like that would have been me. That depends what Ennis comes back. 
I was a huge fan of him when he was healthy and playing well in, in Buffalo. Not that he's a superstar or anything, but oh, he's uh, a good player. Yeah, like I think when you kind of look at it, the Leafs have got three left-hand shots centers, and you know you're not going to be touching the puck a lot with uh, with either if you're on a line with Matthews and Nylander or Tavares and, and Marner or Kadri and Brown slash Kapanen. You're probably not going to be the primary puck carrier. You're not going to be touching the puck a lot, but um, his tenacity and his ability to drive drive the net he defaults at driving the net he can be used more as a disruptor than you know an actual playmaking winger not that he's not able to do that he can, he can do that when, and he makes good decisions with the puck and he has it but i think the fact that you're going to ease up on his uh the amount of times he's touching the puck over the course of a, a shift it might actually play into his uh, play into his hands a little bit better good point and he's super crafty and um there's gonna be zero pressure like nobody's even thinking about him as per fifty thousand dollars there's not a lot of expectations no like honestly <laughs> i might find his email and send him my tweet and just tell him to scroll through the replies and print them out when he's working out all summer <laughs> because he might come back and light the league on fire like so he Spe- might speaking in. of uh speaking of twitter heat guys and let's end on this just to try to get some conversation stirring off this pod <laughs> in in one year's time or just give me yes or no answers is jake gardner or maple leaf Gus? If it was up to me, probably no. I would think that they could find value up front and, and, and find a decent replacement in the back. Personally, I think that Timothy Lilligren is probably going to become what Gardner will eventually devolve into. So I think that that's his replacement, and I think that they can find a decent asset that some other team will desperately want on their roster. They'll capitalize on that. Dick? I, I can't see them paying him seven million dollars he's probably not going to get all the power play time he's not going to be in the penalty kill so you're going to have a guy that's going to be getting sometimes first time first power play minutes sometimes second power play minutes and i don't i don't think he has enough of a i don't think he's useful enough as a a defenseman not that he is it. i think he's a great player and i think he's underrated defensively i know he gets a, a lot of flack in in the within the fan base for some of the gaffes that uh that everyone sees, um, but I, I don't think he, he's not a three situation player. I don't think you can pay those sort of players uh, like him that kind of money. They they need they need to allocate that money on a player that can you can log heavy minutes and, and put a lot of pressure on. Yeah, I think so. I want to say no personally because I would have traded him at the draft if the value was right. But I want to say yes because I feel like I think they're gonna try to resign him. Yep, I'm with you. I, I, I have, think Dubas sees him as a core yep. piece. I haven't heard a word about um, any sort of um, Gardner on the table or available or anything. Like, not even like a a mention of attempt to move him. I I don't know why you don't at least kick those tires. You gotta. If, yeah, uh, you have to establish you, a value, you know. I think, for Gardner right off the bat. Their D doesn't look very good without him. Yeah, it doesn't. Well, I mean, it doesn't look good with him. Like, it doesn't look good regardless. But yes, to your point, (laughs) it looks looks much worse without him. And he's he's probably going to throw up back-to-back 50-point seasons, which is nothing to sneeze at. Um, I don't know. I I could see I could see them trying to get him on like a five-year deal. Oh, you got to do that sooner than later because, as you say, when if you're Gardner playing 20 minutes a night and you're passing pucks up to Tavares, Matthews, Kadri, all night, Nylander. Yeah. Uh, like, he's, I don't see a way, and he's still going to get his, you know, minute and a half, two minutes on the power play. I don't see a way he doesn't come really close to matching his career high last year. I, and so the decision's got to come sooner than later then, doesn't it? Again, I would have personally traded him at the the draft, but in a world where I was trying to re-sign him, I would have called him the day after he won the green jacket in Game 7. And offered him a sweetheart deal and see what uh, see what he would have said. <laughs> and I also realized I never answered the the Janssen question about him moving up to the top six. Um, oh well, you kind of did. <laughs> well, no, I I mentioned that I think he's getting blown way out of proportion by the fan base, which I'll stand by. But my so top line next year. But yeah, probably <laughs> he'll throw up a sixty point season, make me look bad. Someone's gonna replay that. They're gonna snip at that quote and just attach it to anything that I do. Um, but I, 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 do see, 
I do see him, <laughs> I do see him getting a taste, but it's it's only circumstantial. It's only if injuries happen. Like I don't think he's gonna work his way up there, and supplant anyone naturally. Yep, like four. I agree. Babcock's a huge fan. He had a lot of nice things to say about him. I don't know. He says that about everyone, though. Like, there's very few Fair. young players that I've seen him take to task through the media. The only guys he took to task, which was actually quite hilarious and quite telling, was um, the first year they made the playoffs. Like, pretty much every post game was like, "We need more from JVR and Bozak." Yeah. Which cracked me up. Like every post game, it's like the vets need to do more. JVR, Bozak, like mixing a back check, like any sort of defensive effort whatsoever. Like go look, go look at the transcripts. He called them out more times than I can count. But I've never seen him yeah. call out a young guy. No, I I haven't either. So the, I, the other guy that that Babcock clearly hated, but it wasn't because he ever called him out. It was because you'd swear he was never on the team. Was Dominic Moore? Uh, I don't think he said his name all year. He would not say a nice word about that guy, and then <laughs> Goat would come in, lose the face off, and block the shot. And six six all like, night, maybe. Yeah, and he would be like that commitment. <laughs> from goat like it, it was something else all right that's a good finishing note boys uh this was this was good it was very long um so thanks for sticking with us if you have to the audience uh feel free again to, to drop in any feedback that you have good or bad we're always looking to improve and we're only three episodes in here so we'll have a couple more uh probably before uh the the training camp time comes around uh the rookie camp time so uh we'll catch up again i'm sure gus will be on regularly throughout uh next season uh thanks again gus for coming on that's my pleasure thanks very much guys and fuck trump <laughs> <laughs> All right, part two, we'll get into the Putin-Trump summit. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. This has been a Maple Leafs Hot Stove production. For Maple Leafs news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.